Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What's up, 2021 Genesis 90 Turbo? Hey, it's my old friend 2022 Toyota CHR. Hey, what's that inside you? Did you get a new person? Yeah, it's called an Aubrey McCoy. Got it used. I'm not crazy about the color. Me neither, but they didn't have a really big selection at Driver Max. You know, I can talk. I'm listening to what you're saying, and I can talk. We people were the ones who taught you cars how to talk in the first place. Did you hear that? You've got some kind of squeak or rattle coming from that person. Right? It's like a squeaky rattle. My voice is not a squeaky rattle. I hate the way you cars talk about it. Mm, You should take it back. They should fix it or give you a new person. This uh, Jaguar I know just got a new person named Travis Armstrong, and the Jag loves it. Yeah? What's so great about it? There's like a button you push, and Travis Armstrong gets out and washes the Jag. Really? My stupid Aubrey McCoy doesn't do anything like that. I'm not stupid. So you want to go get some gas? Mm, No thanks. I've already got gas. (laughs) (laughs) That one never gets old. You cars have really pathetic senses of humor. Where is the button that turns that down? See, that's the problem with a new person. It takes like a week to figure out the control panel. I think this one turns on the radio. And now the only Beach Boy fan who didn't realize a Woody was a car... Colin McEnroe. No, but now that I realize it is a car, some of those songs make a lot more sense, and I'm a lot less worried about what's going on in those songs. So that was two cars of the future who had just, one of them had just gotten a new person. And it may be like that. We don't know. We know that for a long time, people have tried to imagine what the car of the future would be like. Only recently have we kind of settled into this imaginative rut of thinking that cars will be autonomous or driverless or whatever you want to call them. Um, In the past, of course, we had other ideas. Many of us, when we think of the car of the future, maybe we think of the taxi cab that Corbin Dallas, a.k.a. Bruce Willis, uh, drives in Fifth Element. There's even in my mind, a song from 1993, Donald Fagan wrote a, actually did a concept album called Kamakiria about a man driving a car of the future, uh, in the future, a car that would have, among other things, a hydroponic farm <laughs> inside it. Let's hear a little bit of that. I was born yesterday when they brought my Kamakiri, when they handed me the keys. It's a steam So, yeah, good fresh greens every day of the year, a car that's a total biosphere. Well, why not that as opposed to any of the other models that are out there? Some people have really been thinking about that, and that's what we're going to talk about on the show today. A little bit later on the show, we're going to talk to writer Daniel Albert about the possibility that, well, let's say that we did have 
the automatic driverless cars. They would have to have the capacity to make certain kinds of decisions that you almost have to identify as philosophical in nature. So, I mean, for example, if they had to choose between hitting one kind of person and another kind of person or one numbers, uh, one number of people versus another number of people. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that at the end because jetpacks, we'll talk about jetpacks because jetpacks. You can't not talk about jetpacks because that's the other possibility, of course, and flying cars, all of that. But right now we're going to talk about an unusual thought experiment that's maybe gone even just a step or two beyond thought experiment with a regular contributor to, contributor or guest or something to our show. We've done many shows now with Jonathan Keats, conceptual artist and experimental philosopher from San Francisco, California. And uh, joining, joining us right now is Jonathan and Ryan Ayler, research and design engineer at Hyundai's corporate venture company. The two of them together have been working on a car of the future that's not driverless, not autonomous. It's a little bit more what I would call ingrown, uh, where the relationship between the car and the person, where the person stops and where the car begins gets blurred a little bit. But that's just my interpretation. Let's hear what theirs is. Uh, Welcome, Jonathan and Ryan. Thank you so much. Very good to be on the show again. So, Jonathan, uh, give us your uh, 30-second elevator pitch. What is this concept that, that you've come up with? Well, I realized that the artificial intelligence that is inherent in self-driving cars is problematic for all sorts of reasons. And so, as a result, we might actually end up going in a totally different direction in terms of the car of the future, one that is already foreshadowed by smartphones and wearables, uh, by the way in which technology is not only moving toward greater autonomy and anonymity, which is the self-driving car, but also is moving toward greater intimacy, toward more of a cyborg future. And so I started to imagine what the car of the future might be if it were to become the ultimate wearable. If, in a sense, the driver were to become the car's brain and the car were to become the driver's body. Um, we'll talk more about that. We should say that this is uh, a collaboration with the Silicon Valley Division of Hyundai and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, but Ryan, I would say in some ways what Jonathan is talking about is both the future and the present in the sense that, and, and let's just sort of talk as drivers for a second, we, we know that our relationships with cars have moved a little bit in that direction naturally in two ways that I can think of. One of them is that we drive somewhat unconsciously. I think everybody listening to this who drives can imagine, to, uh, uh, can remember a familiar trip that they took, maybe a journey that they make five days a week, where they started off at point A and ended at point B with no real recollection of driving, of making those decisions, of you know thinking out every little move, that somehow or other some other part of the brain did the work, whatever they call their consciousness, was thinking uh, about something else. And, and then also, the idea that the car, I, I think most, I can't remember where I read this first, but there's certainly this notion that, that the car, we are the brain of the car and we've started to treat the car as our body. That it's why that we get more upset about a dent in our car than any other kind of scratch or dent or ding to anything else because like it's something we're sitting inside of. So it's kind of an extension of our body. I, like, I, I don't know, Ryan. In a way, are we already living maybe one-third or one-quarter of what Jonathan's talking about? I think that we are, because if you look at how the state of technology is in the current car system, as we progress 
towards a more autonomous future, more and more of these cars become more intelligent through sensor technology. As you see, we already have cars that will parallel park themselves. We have cars that will do lane assistance and even stop prevention. So I think that as we progress down this road, we ultimately will become more immersed in the car experience and the car will become an extension to ourselves through all of these different sensor technology. So <clears throat> to go on the progression towards autonomous vehicles, it goes one through five and they are in between steps in order to get there. And before we reach fully level autonomous or fully uh, level five vehicles, we need to have these in-betweens. And we will reach a point in time to where if we have autonomous cars, we will have so many unautonomous cars on the road. So the answer is to hybridize those cars through sensor technology in order to keep up with the safety. So that leads to something called the rotable synapse, um, which does sound like a Buckminster Fuller name. Um, I think, Jonathan, you did a Buckminster Fuller show with where us. Where I get my inspiration. You yeah. figured me out. So tell, tell us about the rotable synapse. So the rotable synapse is my attempt at instantiating this car of the future, this sort of a cyborg future in which the driver and car merge into one. I have not taken up the side in which the driver becomes the car's brain. This is a future of brain-computer interfaces, and it's happening already in labs around the world, and I don't happen to have a lab of my own, at least in that sense, so I'm leaving that to others. But the other side of it is really the one that we are exploring in terms of how do we make it so that you as a driver are viscerally experiencing and internalizing actually that you are taking in as a completely natural phenomenon what the car is experiencing on the road. So, for instance, the speed of the car is actuating a mechanism that stimulates you more. This is all happening through music. We, we came up with as a very simple way in which to be able to make use of the Hyundai Ionic and to make use of the stereo system and the computer system within it, adding a few sensors, a way in which we could simply add on the qualities that I'm interested in exploring. So the music increases in tempo as the car drives faster. And that increase in tempo has the effect of stimulating the driver. And when you're stimulated, according to the neuroscientific literature, time appears to move more slowly for you. Mm -hmm. So more happens in any given interval, which is exactly what the car is experiencing on the road. The car is passing more per unit time. So as a result of that, you are actually psychologically entering into the experience of the car. It's not just like watching the speedometer or some sort of data visualization. It actually is a way in which you are becoming one with the vehicle. And so the idea has been to take on several different qualities initially. So everything from the engine in the form of RPM and the power of the car to driving efficiency to also the aerodynamics, basically the airflow over the outside of the car. Can we make it so that the car's body really has that quality of being your skin? And in that case, we're using sensors that we've added to the car, anemometers, that are measuring the airflow on the left and right side of the car and adjusting the 
balance between the left and right speakers so that through your binaural hearing, which is one of the means by which humans navigate and get their sense of the external space, that that is being enlisted to give you some sense of the car's external space and to give you some sort of a means by which you are directly embodying as part of your own body schema what the car is encountering out in the world. So uh, it's uh, Aristotle, if he were sitting here, I mean, we'd have to bring him up to speed about a lot of stuff, but uh, he'd probably want to know what the good is, all right? So you can make it possible, more and more possible, increasingly possible, in a very subtle way for a human being to understand what it's like to be that human being's car um, so that the, the boundary between them begins to be more porous. Aristotle would, want, would say, so we're, what's the good? Well, of course, if I'm talking to Aristotle, I'm probably not going to be trying to sell him a car. Maybe I am, but I think that it's more likely that I'm going to be trying to sell him on, philosophically speaking, where I'm coming from in terms of this as a concept. And that really is not so much about the car of the future as a product as it is about exploring the future through building a car and through putting it on the road and allowing people to experience it as a way of giving some alternative to the driverless car in a way that is true to the directions that technology is now taking and true to the ways in which we are apparently Oop, we might have lost something there. I think we just uh, lost an ISDN. So um, we're going to try to restore that connection. Um, I could go to a break, but let me just sort of um, do some summarizing here, and we'll just sort of see where we are. Uh, so first of all, let me just tell you what happened. We're using what's called an ISDN connection that uh, has us connected to San Francisco. It's the reason that it sounds like Jonathan and Ryan are in the room. It's what we use all the time. I think you just heard it drop. Uh, it may take a, a little while to get it back up. Um, we are talking about this notion, and maybe this is also something that if you wanted to join the conversation, um, we could do phones, 860-275-7266. If you're listening here in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. Definitely Twitter, at WNPR Colin. Um, one of the things that I'm intrigued by here is that, um, in a way, what we have now is the sensation of driving a car and, and being the driver of a car. Uh, and uh, and then also the sensation, as Ryan was talking about, of occasionally letting the car take over, right? So you do have now cars that will park themselves, but you have to sort of make that break, right? You make the break between I am here, I am driving the car, and now here the car goes, it's parking itself. I think we have Ryan and Jonathan back. Do we? Hi, you guys there? Yes. Okay. Indeed. Good. Would so see technology. This is this, this is an illustration of something. I don't know. But so Ryan, what I was talking about before is okay. So we, in a way, what we we have is a mode that we're in where I am driving the car. This is me. I'm driving the car. I'm making the car go where I want it to. And then, as you say, there's technology now where occasionally we make a consciousness shift and we say, okay, I am going to let my Lexus park itself right now because it can do that. So it's going to parallel park for me. Um, what we're talking about more here with Jonathan, it seems to me, Ryan, is this kind of middle ground, which I think we already sort of have. And I'll give you 
you an example. There's a lot of people who still, although fewer and fewer of them, but a lot of some people who still want to drive, they want to drive a manual transmission. They feel it gives them more control, maybe better gas mileage. They've got all kinds of arguments for it. But the reality is that a computer can now shift better than a person, that in terms of gas efficiency or anything else that might be an aid to traveling around, everybody will tell you, including, I assume, Ryan Ayler, that it's you're better off letting the, the automatic transmission do it. And so are we talking about sort of that particular distinction extended even into other areas of the car? Yeah, so I can actually talk from firsthand experience. I own a manual vehicle. And what I like about a manual vehicle, I actually enjoy the fact that I've now become one with the car and the driving experience. I can experience the car shifting through the gears, the engine RPM. I have complete control over what I'm doing. And not, not to mention it includes a fun factor as you're kind of racing around the hills of California or you now become more engaged and in-depth with who you are to the car. And I think that um, with this project that we've seeked out, by engaging the driver into all of these new sensory experiences, you now you now gain more of a even more of a fun factor to this. For instance, when we built the system and I had the system running on my vehicle as I was going into a highway and we are creeping through a red light it began to have a slow music tempo a low volume and I can manually control the music volume as I shift into a different gear and when we floor onto the highway and it gets faster and faster and faster, your heartbeat actually starts to increase because you become more engaged and more excited about the entering onto the highway. And Ryan and I are at opposite extremes of the spectrum here. I, I hate to drive. I've never owned a car. I hope never to own a car for the rest of my life. But driving the rotable synapse for me really was interesting because... I don't have any of the experiences that Ryan does in terms of feeling connected to a vehicle. I think that's why I hate to drive. And actually having these mechanisms that are helping me to embody what the car is experiencing improved that experience for me, made me feel less alien in the car, made the car feel less alien to me. Well, Jonathan, I want to explore that for a second. We should also mention, I don't think we got to it, but there, this idea of a seatbelt feature that would um, would simulate hunger in the person's stomach at a time when the car needed gas. So we have kind of a catch-all term for instances where the distinction between human and machine becomes blurred to the extent of disappearing. And that's cyborg, right? I mean, at least from science fiction, that's a, that's a sort of a cyborg thing. Um, and it's different, I think, than Sigourney Weaver putting on that kind of exoskeleton that she puts on in, uh, in Aliens uh, in order to, to, you know, exaggerate or merge her her mind with the strength of a machine. This is more subtle what we're talking about right now. Right, Jonathan? I mean, this is, uh, um, the idea anyway, is to merge one's own consciousness with at least the experience, the sensate experience of a machine. Indeed. So what I am interested in is taking what is already happening just one step beyond into a realm that is potentially at least to me, kind of disturbing. Uh, we already are 
entering into this sort of cyborg future through our smartphones and our wearables in a way that the 60s anticipated, but without any of the Sturm und Drang of the 60s. In the 60s, it was all about, I'm going to become the bionic man, should I do it? The smartphone has kind of crept up on us in this sort of incremental way. So what I want to do with this car is to just get a little bit beyond into a zone that is potentially uncomfortable, where, for as you, for instance, as you say, the car makes you hungrier as your fuel level drops, and it does so in this case by making your stomach rumble. So basically, gastric motility, which is a fancy word for a rumbling stomach, is induced, and through interoception or your perception of your internal organs at work, you start to get hungrier. To me, that is compelling and also disturbing because it really does get at the way in which when we merge with machines in this sort of sense of a shared awareness, we do, as a result of that, lose some sense or some aspect of ourselves. And I think that's already happening, but I don't think that we're noticing it nearly enough, given how these technologies have just kind of seeped into our pockets and onto our wrists. So the car is a provocation in that sense. So, um, Daniel, oh, sorry, not Daniel, um, uh, Ryan, as we're talking here, I'm, I'm leaping ahead already in my mind. Uh, Ryan, as we're talking here, okay, I have one of those things on my wrists. Uh, I have a Fitbit on my wrist right now. But one thing that we know is that people respond differently to, let's say, a Fitbit. For example, I am very easily manipulated. I am very approval-seeking. I want my Fitbit to, quote-unquote, like me. I often will do things my Fitbit tells me to do. Uh, but that's because of how I was brought up in a household where I was, where I got love for you know doing what I was told. Um, other people were brought up different ways, and they have very different reactions to Fitbits. They don't want to be bossed around, or they don't care, and they just don't do any of the things that the Fitbit wants them to do. And, Ryan, I'm assuming not everybody is going to have, like, you seem to be having a lot of fun driving this car that in a way is, you know, making you aware of its carness while you're driving it. But I'm just assuming not everybody's going to want to do that, right? No, of course not. No, of course. And, you know, this is a uh, the auditory experience is more or less a artistic conceptualization of what we can do by creating a new user experience through sensory technology. So for instance, your Fitbit, or if you have an Apple smartwatch, you can read your heart rate. And you can even in more depths go th and pull th your respiration rate. If you could take that, those sense data points, you can now create actuated out point, outputs for, from your vehicle to enhance your driving experience. Let me paint a little picture for you. If um, currently on the currently here in the valley, there are companies that are that are building new sensor hardware to monitor your heart and respiration rate. If you can monitor your heart and respiration rate through the vehicle, your vehicle can now become the car that cares about you. And it, it, say if you're driving down the highway and you're stuck in this San Francisco traffic over here. Now, if, uh, if it, your car senses your stress levels raising from your heart rate rising, your respiration rate rising, 
it now can cue your favorite aromatherapy. Maybe you have an aromatherapy pod <laughs> embedded with it within to the ventilation system. If you're stressed, you get some cooling lavender. And now it can automatically cue your favorite Spotify playlist to uplift your mood. Same thing, if you, it could also sense if you're drowsy and getting sleepy. And well, now you become a safety hazard to the rest of the community. And so it can cue some bright energetic ambient lighting within the vehicle it can give you a mood burst with some citrus aromatherapy and now maybe turn on some electronic music to stimulate your senses so more or less this concept was to show how can we recreate the car of the future with the existing sensory technology through a new user experience from human to vehicle interaction but, Jonathan, I, we have to take a break uh, right after this, but, Jonathan, I sense your thoughts moving, I think, in a slightly opposite direction in the sense that, at least as we look at, at what you've done here with the rotable synapse, it's more like you want me, the driver, to say, wait a minute, I feel kind of funny. I feel funny like maybe my fan and thermostat are not working quite the right way to cool the engine. I might actually be headed towards, you know, some kind of what kind of need for roadside assistance here, but I would feel this. I, the person driving, would feel, wow, I think there might be something going on with the coolant system of me right now. Yes, and I think that you can go in, obviously, many different directions in terms of when you start to figure out how to break into our neuroscientific selves in terms of how you actuate us. And to me, it is most interesting right now because it is, I guess, most provocative to try to figure out what happens when we are able actually to experience the machine's point of view. Uh, that is really where the rotable synapse is right now. And will go more in that direction as, for instance, we start to develop robotics in the car seat that will increase your anxiety level as the car experiences engine trouble. That happens by basically moving you into a closed posture that will increase your cortisol if uh, some research out of Harvard is to be believed. So really giving you this internalized sense of everything happening in the car, both positive and negative, that to me is a way in which to put a wedge between us and the driverless future in order then to be able to get some perspective on it and some perspective on ourselves. All right. We're going to take a break right now. Uh, thanks so much to, to Ryan and, and Hyundai uh, for talking to us about this project that they're doing with Jonathan. Uh, Ryan Ayler, research and design engineer at Hyundai's corporate venture company. Um, we're going to take a break and then we're going to kind of violate the fundamental premise of this show and say, well, what if the autonomous car, the driverless car, whatever you want to call it. What if that is a substantial part of the future? What kind of philosophy should that car have? Good evening, modern travelers. Won't you be our guest? We have pushed button living at its very best. There's automatic sleep control in every bed, and our pre-digested food is cooked by infrared. Okay, okay, we like what you say. Mr. Tower Man, take us that way. Roger, Firebird, I'll swing you to the right. Hands on steering. 
<clears throat> excuse me, we are back with Jonathan Keats, conceptual artist and experimental philosopher from San Francisco. Uh, and in fact, we're doing a show uh, right now about the future of cars, what cars will be like uh, in the future. And um, I should say that this is a produced by Josh Nalea, who kind of so, so some producer on the show always has to be available and around to work with Jonathan Keats. And so Josh has taken this over from Patrick Scahill. Um, and uh, so there also has to be a designated Jonathan Keats producer. But as Josh was talking about this and like who else could be on this, I said, well, this guy, Daniel Albert, who writes for N Plus One, writes some of the most interesting stuff about cars that I've ever read uh, and particularly about the future of cars. And in fact, he has an upcoming book. Are we there yet? Cars, robots, and the end of driving in America. And even though the our initial idea was kind of uh, along with Jonathan to say, what if there aren't autonomous cars? I thought it might be interesting to talk about what if there are and they have to make decisions. They have to make decisions, the kinds of decisions that are essentially philosophical in nature. So we're going to start there with Daniel Albert. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for that kind introduction. Um, so let's 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 do a basic problem that an autonomous car might have to solve, and um, I'm going to pick uh, from your work uh, the one with the uh, overloaded truck on the three lane, lane highway. So Daniel, take it from there. Okay. Well, I shouldn't take credit for that. That uh, actually comes from a fellow named Patrick Glenn, and he does this great kind of cartoon uh, where he uh, tries to explicate the issues. And what he describes is you're following a truck. You've got, uh, say, a motorcycle on your left down a three-lane highway, and on your right is a minivan full of kids. The boxes fall off the back of the truck. You have three choices, hit the boxes, hit the motorcyclist, or hit the minivan. Uh, And I say you, but really I mean the car. Uh, The car has to now make kind of a a very rapid uh, decision about who to kill who lives and who dies. And so um, that's been a a real question that's um, exercised a lot of people exploring this. And a a super smart car might even have split seconds to make some further assessments, right? It's not just one motorcyclist and an SUV, but who's in the SUV? What's up with the motorcyclist, right? The, the, The car might be in a position to, I don't know if this is the right word, but kind of judge everybody else. Well, that's right. And again, this is um, something that's that's gotten kind of a lot of play and people are very interested in it. Uh, uh, you know, it might look and say, well, hey, this guy's not wearing his helmet. He's an idiot anyway. So, you know, let's dispense with him. Uh, it, it might uh, otherwise say, you know, you've, you've really not been a very good driver and I'm not very good to your kids and we're going to go ahead and crash into those boxes and see how you do. Um, so th- that kind of uh, utilitarian philosophy, what's the greatest good for the greatest number, might uh, come into play if the car is smart enough. That's right. So, I mean, how uh, is this a thought experiment right now, or is this something that is really a thing that people are grappling with that might become a part of automotive software in, in the near future? Okay, so this started out as an idea, which I think is a great idea. You say to programmers, you know, you're teaching these these coders uh, to program, and you say, well, now you need to think all the way through to what's going to happen to the car on the road in some extreme circumstance. And that, again, that's where this starts, and I think that's a great idea, right? You want uh, programmers to be... Uh, you know, to get out of their own heads and to stop just uh, uh, typing semicolons and, and think about what all this programming means. Uh, 
Um, as I say, it's really been picked up. You know, you find this kind of thing uh, on Wired magazine. You find it on NPR. Um, and to me, that's less about it being a real issue uh, and more about uh, our fears and expectations of autonomous cars. And, you know, some of it is uh, the fear of our robot overlords. You know, the, the, the robot car will decide who lives and who dies. That was one headline. Um, so I don't think in the sense of, you know, the people at Google or the people at uh, uh, General Motors who are trying to make cars right now uh, that drive themselves are, are really that concerned about this kind of question. It's more um, that this question represents some of our anxieties and some of our expectations with autonomous vehicles. Right. So, Jonathan, uh, put on your philosopher hat right now. So, in a way, talking about our robot overlords, which we do all the time on this show, is a, a form of misdirection. Ultimately, what we're talking about here, anyway, unless cars get a lot more cyborgy and intertwined with humans, we're just talking about a human being making a set of decisions, setting up a set of parameters, sticking them into software, and basically that, you know, that car is basically going to do what Jonathan Keats or or whoever decided all cars should do. That's right. I mean, I I, I guess, uh, you know, some of the thinking now is that a lot of this is going to be uh, artificial intelligence. Mm. And so at some point, um, the it's sort of like, uh, you know, Skynet becomes self-aware in, in the Terminator series. The cars will have so much data to work with and they will essentially be, right, as a fleet, be rewriting their own programs uh, going forward uh, as they experience the real world. And at that point, it really does become disassociated from whoever uh, you know wrote the original code. Um, uh, I'm just uh, checking in on our ISDN. Uh, Jonathan Keats, are you still there? No, so we might have lost Jonathan for a second. At some point, I want him to uh, react a little bit. Well, it seems to me that the other thing that we're talking about, kind of, is what people used to refer to as fuzzy logic, uh, or, or maybe now it's like fuzzy ethics. Because what we typically do as human beings, Dan, is make kind of gray area decisions about stuff. I'll, I can give you an example from my life. I've got a tire pressure indicator on my car that comes on really easily. Um, and I have to look at it and think about it and think, you know what, usually I can drive 20 miles or more with this thing on and it doesn't really mean anything and I deal with it eventually and it's oversensitive. I, I don't know. I make all kinds of very human gray area judgments. Whereas I'm assuming a car is pretty binary. It's going to say this thing is either things are right or they're wrong. Is there a way to, first of all, is that something that the engineers are beginning to think about? Well, um, I guess first to tell you, I have the same tire pressure monitoring <laughs> system problem, yeah. and I do the same thing, and then I got stuck on the side of the highway with a flat tire on the New Jersey Turnpike. So just to warn you, okay. uh, pay, pay attention. But in, in terms of the fuzzy logic and, and the way the engineers are uh, thinking about it, you know, I guess I, I would focus more on what they're not thinking about and how there's kind of an embedded logic or embedded morality, if you will, in the entire uh, car, road, driver system. And so to, to separate out, you know, an, an instantaneous decision that an individual vehicle would make from what's going on in um, uh, the rest of the ecosystem is, is a little... Um, 
you know, disingenuous, uh, is a bit of a distraction. You know, it, it, I, I come back to, to that original story about the boxes falling off the back of the truck. And my question is, why, re, why was the car tailgating the truck in the first place? Why did it not have plenty of time to stop? And so um, those questions are the kind of fuzzy logic questions that I think will eventually get into discussions about autonomous vehicles. One of the promises uh, that's being made is that autonomous vehicles will let cars travel much closer together because they'll be so much smarter. I think um, the, the learning process, or call it the fuzzy logic, um, will um, begin to tell the cars themselves that, hey, you really can't follow you know, one car length behind this big truck. You've got to follow three car lengths behind this big truck and so forth. Um, you know, Jonathan, when he was on earlier, was talking about this ex- experiment he's doing with Hyundai in which the, the distinction between car and person is intentionally blurred. Um, but I, I, I think most of us, Dan, as we think about this idea of what sort of interactions would we have with a car that was capable of making the kinds of decisions that we're talking about, are that we would effectively talk to the car. You know, I, maybe David Hasselhoff is responsible for this. I, I don't really know. But there's that kind of notion anyway that the car would tell us things. And, in fact, I think most people, when they hear you talk about the three-lane highway experiment, they think, well, the car would tell us what it was going to do, right? At minimum, the car would say, you know what? I've decided really to let you die, and, and here's why. <laughs> but But that's not necessarily the case. But you've looked anyway at cars that do talk to people. Wasn't there one, a car that even kind of flirted with somebody to get it to drive it? Uh, that's right. Now, this was, I should say, a bit of a, a stage performance, and it was done by uh, Nissan at the Consumer Electronics Show. And, you know, I, I think that actually tells us something important. This was a huge production by a car company, not at an auto show, but at a Consumer Electronics Show. And so that's where these uh, car companies are going. And it was the car company trying to suggest a new relationship between the vehicle and, and the person. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of kind of vaudevillian stick where the, the car says, you know, come on, you, you come drive with me. And, and it's got a female voice, of course, and she opens her doors and she folds away her steering wheel. And, you know, the, the guy's trying to make a, a presentation to thousands of people and she's saying, come on, let's go for a ride. And that idea of the car having uh, so much personality, even being needy, right? Even being, you know, come on, you haven't driven in a while, let's go drive, um, I think is what um, people are beginning to imagine. I, I guess the, the reality of that or the reality that we see today is, okay, so the car wants to talk to us. We're not really listening, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're on our phones, we're on our social media. Um, and, and a lot of the promise of the autonomous cars will have time freed up to work or will have time freed up to, to you know, shop or whatever it is. Uh, we don't really want to be engaged with the vehicle in, in the same way. And I think that's what's so interesting about John Keats's work is, is he's ex- exploring, well, you know, maybe we do want to be uh, connected to that vehicle. You know, that that gets into... Uh, something that I know that you've given some thought to, too, which is the way in which driving is this kind of chronological equivalent of what we sometimes call third space, you know, third space being this idea that it isn't home, it isn't work, it's some other place, it's a coffee shop, it's it's whatever. It's, and, and that 
chronologically, there's a way in which driving is a little bit like that, right? It it has been a place where you can't hold me as accountable as you would if I were in my workplace, and I'm probably not as emotionally present as I would be ideally expected to be at home, right? It's this it's this other kind of space. But if in fact we don't have any responsibilities for driving, does that change? Uh, I mean, I certainly think it does, and more to the point, I think the auto companies think it does. I think um, what well, one of the things that's very interesting is, you know, in the old uh, car ads, you would often see talk about sofa-wide seats, or the the first post-war Ford was advertised as a living room on wheels, and it was this idea of the vehicle as an extension of the home, sort of a mobile, uh, you know, extra room. Um, that's not what's being talked about now. What's being talked about now mostly is the mobile office. And the idea is that, well, look, you're not driving, so now you can be you know, at your computer or having a, uh, uh, a conference call or any of these other things. You're no longer in this space, as you describe, a third space between leisure and labor. Um, and what's exciting for these car companies uh, going forward is, if we can eliminate that space, if we can turn it into one of these other two, leisure or labor, then we can begin to monetize it. Then we can begin to sell you something or we can begin to uh, make use of your labor uh, while you're traveling. Uh, and, and we've seen a lot of that with um, the, the concept cars that the, uh, the auto companies are showing off at Consumer Electronics Show and at the auto shows. Mm. Well, I live three minutes from my job. All right, we have to stop there. uh, And we are about to uh, take a little break. We're going to come back uh, with David Maiman, who absolutely is the king of the jetpack. But it's been a fun uh, conversation and a pleasure to have uh, with Dan Albert. Uh, You should absolutely read his work uh, in N Plus One and his book soon to come up, uh, which is Are We There Yet? Cars, Robots, and the End of Driving in America. You seem like you're in a hurry. Would you like me to go faster? I thought Clippy was dead. How did you get into my car computer, Clippy? It sounds like you had too much coffee. Would you like me to brew some decaf? No, Clippy. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf, with voiceover help from Sir Ray Hardman, Betsy Kaplan, and Jonathan McPants. Amanda Fish is currently dating J.D. Power. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steve McQueen. On tomorrow's show, we go deep inside the world of obituaries. And now... Back to Colin. It seems like you would like to go back to Colin. Shut up. (laughs) All right. So um, I didn't even know J.D. Power was a real person. Uh, We're going to talk to David Maiman right now. After we talk to David Maiman, if you haven't done this, if you're not one of the two million plus uh, who've done this already, go on the Internet. Go to YouTube. Type in David Maiman, M-A-Y-M-A-N and jetpack or something like that. And you can watch him flying around the Statue of Liberty with a jetpack. Um, So David Maiman, obviously the dream of every commuter stuck in traffic, every 13-year-old boy, and certainly every animated coyote chasing a roadrunner has been to have a jetpack. You have one. 
how, how is this possible? Or, or I don't even know which question to ask first. Maybe the question to ask first is, what makes a jetpack a jetpack? When we use that term, what are we really saying? So a jet a jetpack to uh, to me, and I guess our, our team, Colin, is is uh, something that you can wear on your back rather than being you know something you step into like a helicopter and. Uh, a definition for us, it needs to be turbine powered, so you know, jet engine powered, rather than uh, a ducted fan or some or something like that. So small, powerful, and uh, jet powered. You know, there, there's been a, a, it's almost kind of a running joke. There's even a rock band called We Were Promised Jetpacks. There's been a kind of Where Are yeah. They joke for a really long time. What really has been the stumbling block? What's the threshold that has been so difficult to clear? Uh, it's been, frankly, it's been the uh, the technology related to two things. Uh, one is the the turbine engine itself, um, creating something that's small enough and, and reliable enough. Um, the other is the stabilisation technology. Uh, even even ten or twelve years ago, to um, you know to, to, to purchase the, the sensor systems that we would need uh, to provide the stabilisation that we've uh, we've got now, it would be the size of a sort of the size of a shoebox and would have been, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And now everybody's walking around with one in there and probably three in their cell phone. So it's, it's really those, those two things. The, the turbine engine's getting smaller and more capable and then the stabilization electronics or the electronics behind uh, how we stabilize a, a, a mass like this. So uh, getting smaller and more, more affordable. In in 2015, you made the famous flight around the Statue of Liberty. People can go watch it on YouTube. You're, you're, you and your jetpack are doing everything that we ever thought a jetpack would do. <laughs> so why yeah. is the world not completely different now? Why don't I have a jetpack? Why doesn't the Army have a special jetpack-equipped forces that go and go on special missions? Why isn't the yeah. world utterly different than it was in 2015? It's a really, really good question. And, I mean, we are working with the, the military uh, there in, in, in America, and um, they have started flying uh, our machine fairly recently. But the, the stumbling block really is um, safety systems and endurance. To be practical, we need something that can fly for longer than 10 minutes, and that's where we're sort of capping out at it at, at the moment. And the other thing is this is... Uh, you know, for your listeners that have some aviation background, uh, an, an aircraft, if it has an engine failure, it has a wing. It can glide. If it has one engine, then it's going to glide to where it's going to hit the ground, obviously. Uh, if it has two engines, that, that remaining engine may keep it aloft for long enough for it to run, uh, land back in a runway. But a helicopter can auto-rotate, but a jetpack doesn't have any... Uh, it doesn't have any system for keeping it aloft like a wing or a rotor system. So we need to build a, a safety system so that if we have a catastrophic failure at any height, effectively, uh, we can come down gently and, and, uh, and, and survive the blame. Well, you know, now that you say that, look, Jetpack Pilot sounds like the coolest thing in the world. Jetpack Test Pilot sounds like the worst job in the world. Was there kind of a wily e. Coyote phase here where you guys were, like, smashing into stuff? Yeah, there sure was. And my, my title is uh, CEO, um, Test Pilot, and Crash Test Dummy. So it's, uh, it's been a mixed bag over the last 11 years. And, and I mean, th- thankfully, whenever we've had an issue, and we've, had, we've certainly had many, uh, it's been on a sort of a safety line. So if you imagine two towers, um, 
a uh, hundred yards apart and a cable strung between those towers and then sort of a pulley system that runs backwards and forwards. We hang ourselves, we hang the jetpack under that when we're doing all of our testing. Um, so, yes, yeah. we've, had, we've had lots of oops, oopses that uh, they've been on the, uh, on the test system. So if I, I, I don't really want one right now, I'll eventually want one. But I know, oh, let's, on. say, let's say I know somebody who had a, a lot of money. I, like, I do know somebody. Let's say his name rhymes with Marnold Trace, who would really like to have a jetpack <laughs> and could afford it probably. How much, can, a, can a consumer buy one of these right now? Not right now, not until we have the, the safety systems completed. We won't sell them to um, you know, recreational users. Uh, they are available to government and, and, and military users now uh, in, in the sort of 250 to $300 uh, price range. All right. Well, listen, this is a week. I can't wait for the future. I mean, once all, I want all the bugs worked out first, but right. I do want a jetpack. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Um, this is, I mean, this is like the beginning of any other, uh, uh, you know, in, in any other field. And as we produce greater volumes, obviously that, you know, the, the price point, the cost of us, the price point can, can come down. But it's very much an artisan sort of approach at the moment. We build, uh, we have, we've built six so far. Uh, but if we were to build a hundred, or if we were to build a thousand, the idea is that that price could come down in the end to, you know, to a, a mid to a mid to luxurious uh, automobile. Right. But right that's now, two, yeah, two hundred fifty thousand. Uh, I, I I don't have that. Um, listen, right. David Mayman has been so great to talk to you. Uh, this has been a very interesting show as well. Thanks to Josh and Alea. Uh, thanks to all the other guests as well, Dan Albert, uh, and of course Jonathan Keats, Ryan Ayler from Hyundai. We will be back tomorrow with obituaries, which I hope have no connection to jetpacks. Kayon, we need to talk. Oof, that doesn't sound good. It's not good. Yesterday you... You can't keep jetpacking away from your problems, Kayon. Oh, yes, I can. 